Hey everybody, my guest today is David Perkins. David is the founder of High West Whiskey. A chance visit to the Maker's Mark Distillery in 2001 sparked a dream for David. Listen in to the failures and successes of David's journey and the journey of High West. From its humble beginnings to becoming Whiskey Advocates Distillery of the Year. David's passion, energy, infectious nature, attention to detail, and meticulousness are easy to see. And I hope you enjoy learning what has driven him to succeed. Perfect. David, how are we doing? <laughs> We're doing great. How are we doing? Oh, I am doing excellent. Excellent, excellent. Thank you, sir, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Are you kidding me? Thank you for asking. I, I tickled pink. <laughs> Love it. So, uh, Gray, or, uh, David, for those out there who are not aware, the founder of uh, High West Whiskey Distillery, best whiskey in, uh, in the world, in my opinion. It's absolutely my favorite. Actually, we're uh, sharing in on a little whiskey right now. Wow, that's Cheers. a good accolade right there. Yeah, of course. well, it's my opinion. <laughs> we'll take that. I mean, there's a lot of good whiskey out there, though, so I want you to spread the love, all right? Spread, ah, I love High West. What can uh-huh. I say? <laughs> so let's go back just kind of a little bit, uh, kind of going into where, where High West kind of comes from. You know, I mean, uh, you have your degree, you get it in biochemistry, you spend some time at a bunch of those uh, – pharmaceutical companies, Pfizer, Amgen, Genentech, and, and it's kind of a, a, a wedding to blame, right? Wow, I guess uh, you could put it <laughs> that way. It was a wedding to blame. Yeah, my cousin got married in, uh, in Cincinnati, which as you know is right next to Kentucky. And mm-hmm. When you're next to Kentucky, uh, we decided to take a trip from Cincinnati and visit a distillery. And back then, people didn't really visit the distillers that much. Right. Uh, so tours and stuff like that, but it was kind of uh, not as... Uh, it wasn't the thing that it was today. Turns out drinking in the United States hit an all-time low in 1998. Really? That wasn't that long ago. No. Capita consumption of alcohol was all-time low in 1998. The wedding was 2001. So three okay. years later, you know, the alcohol was in the dumps. Huh. I didn't realize we that. Were, we were there. We thought, why not? We liked wine. We were living in Palo Alto at the time. Uh, you know, we thought, why not whiskey? So we went to Maker's Mark, middle of nowhere. Middle of nowhere. I mean, it, it, uh, you get lost going there, seriously. But beautiful really? place, cool place. But it was kind of a folksy, you know, it wasn't really up to your standards, I think, for a tour. <laughs> Not up to the high west standards. And, right. you know, we just thought, gosh, you can do a lot better. And that's kind of where it started. And that night, we were talking, gosh, you know, let's make whiskey. Um, mainly because it was basically the same business as what I had been doing, which is biotech. Right. Now, what, what was kind of, where did that drive come from? Um, drive to start my own business? Exactly, yeah. Uh, I think I always wanted to do my own thing. You know, I, it wasn't a question of whether, it was a question of when. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I knew I had to cut my teeth in big companies because big companies do a lot of things really well and they do things smart and they train you. And, you know, I had excellent companies I worked for with great training and smart people and uh, I was able to step through lots of different functions from market research to sales to forecasting to product development. Right. And, uh, you know, I sort of checked a bunch of boxes and I, I, I was ready and I knew I was ready when I checked all those boxes. Sounds like it. The idea. I didn't know what the idea would be. Right. It sounds like it made you uh, pretty well-rounded though, being able to go well, through kind of. I mean, it, it sure helped you learn about, you know, I, I'm not a finance guy, but it, it, that's probably the one box I didn't check. Mm-hmm. And so that was the, the weakest part on my resume was knowing anything about finance, but then starting up, well, you learn finance fast because it's all <laughs> money's the language of business and you got to learn, you know, what's a P&L, what's a balance sheet, what's cash flow. And, uh, that was my last box checking that actually in the startup. So, right. So where, where did that kind of growth come from after that wedding kind of after you get that tour of maker's mark and you're like, Hey, I think, I think I would like to cut my teeth in this. Well, we hadn't moved to Utah yet, but we were okay. planning on moving out west. And, you know, moving, going to the distillery and tasting whiskey and thinking, you know, gosh, we could do this. And then that night we were watching High Plains Drifter. The classic. Classic. And then that was the, the light bulb right there. Well, a Western whiskey. Are there any Western whiskeys? There weren't any Western whiskeys at the time. And we thought how obvious that was. I mean, it's not like we're doing a, 
uh, rum in the West or something like that. It'd be a whiskey in the West. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was so obvious. And we thought, why is anybody else doing it? So that was kind of a, it just made sense. Cowboys drank. We were moving to Park City. Miners drank. There were a lot of saloons. Yep. So uh, why, why wouldn't we do that? We thought it was just stupid not to do it. Right. And what were, so what went into the move from Palo Alto to, to Park City? Oh, you know, it wasn't that hard, to be honest. We really didn't look back. Uh, we, had, we had one daughter, and my wife was pregnant at the time. And Palo Alto, the Bay Area, is just so crowded. Yeah. And you'd have to wait three months to get in to see your doctor. It's like, no, I, I got to see you now. <laughs> and, you know, you'd have to spend the night to get your kid in the school where we were. And we thought, you know, there's just a better way than this. So there must be. So we thought, let's move to Utah, the 50th per capita consumer of alcohol in the United States. And let's see if we can't get this thing started. But luckily, Greg Scherf was here. That's true. Yeah. No, it's a good Greg Scherf was here. And so, you know, we thought, well, you know, I mean, we weren't that stupid moving to a low alcohol consuming place. It was moving to Park City and starting there. So. Yeah. No, it really is a, a gorgeous place. And it's, it's crazy to think of uh, Palo Alto now. You know, you talk about moving back then and it, and it being overcrowded. But uh, oh, it's, it's you got crazy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? We had a house that we bought for, I don't know, $600,000. That was all the money in the world to me then. And, you mm -hmm. know, we didn't think it could ever go up anymore. Right? It's, it's, who knows? It's worth $2 million in animals or something. Yeah. Uh, who needs that crap, right? Exactly. You get the nice, uh, easy living out here in Park City. Way so, easier living out here. That's right. Once you kind of come out to Park City, what are, what are some of those, those next steps? Well... First step was uh, try to find somebody to talk me out of it. So I met Greg Scherf. <laughs> <laughs> Greg's a big cheerleader. Uh, Greg was a great cheerleader. You know, he's like, why wouldn't you do it? And so he was the guy that said, you know, look, let's go to City Hall. Mm -hmm. They've opened mic nights. I, you know, I don't know, it was Monday nights or something. Uh, you know, you go in and there's all the locals talking about stuff. Well, there's, you know, somebody's dog pooping in my backyard and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. And then Greg gets up and says, well, this guy wants to start a whiskey distillery, and I think you ought to sell him the building down at the bottom of Main Street, that old garage. Dave, why don't you get up and tell him about it? I'm like, what, me? So I <laughs> told him about it, and that's kind of where it started. So. That's but that awesome. was great. He, he introduced me, and uh, he talked. He said, you know, there's no way you can't do any other building but that. And, uh, you know, let's make sure City Hall understands it. And at that time, other people were interested in building and stuff, so they put it out for a uh, uh, you know, a competition of bid and whoever had the kind of the best idea and the money, and, uh, you know, we won. So that was a good thing. How, how tough was it kind of at that time? Cause it's kind of hard to imagine thinking back uh, to that time period compared to now, because now you look around and in, in Utah alone, I mean, distilleries are popping up left and right. Yeah. So, I mean, how, how it's, it's not as unique of an idea um, today as it, as it must have been back then, especially there hadn't been one in Utah since what, like 1870 or 1876? Right? Yep. Somewhere around then. I mean, there were illegal yep. ones, but nothing legal. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, nobody wanted a, a brewery or distillery in their backyard downtown. Mm -hmm. You know, they thought we we're going to explode and create fires and stink and all that stuff. So, you know, there was a lot of people concerned and didn't like the idea. Um, but, uh, you know, we were able to check the boxes and convince them otherwise using experts and just, you know, plain old communication. That's really kind of straightforward. And if you meet people and explain things to people, most people are pretty rational. They're just afraid of the unknown. So, right. um, but you know, since no one had ever done it, you're afraid of the unknown and it is flammable stuff that you're making. Sure. So the building department, the fire department, and yet a lot of masters you had to, to meet and address their issues and, you know, not only that, then there was an ABC, uh, which, uh, you know, they never granted a license before. So we weren't sure. You know, we thought maybe the Mormon thing, they wouldn't, Mormons wouldn't like it. So yeah. if you remember the book, uh, uh, Under the Banner of Heaven. Under the John, John Krakow. John Krakow. You know, I read that before we moved here and I thought, oh my God, people are going to firebomb this place. <laughs> Turns out that didn't happen. But, you know, we, we had a lot of hurdles to overcome and it, yeah. it wasn't completely obvious. I mean, it seems like a no brainer now, but at the time we felt like we're you know, running into brick walls. Yeah. Now, one of those things kind of, kind of going back towards, towards that start that uh, I'll always get asked a lot is, is the name. 
where does where does that that high west kind of kind of name come from and what what were some of those names you you were fighting with first of all nice hat by the way i think you know i got to represent <laughs> you know, good hat. Uh, the Thank name you. Uh, it wasn't the name at first the name at first for me was a very spiritual name quaking aspen quaking aspen i grew up in colorado and we, we spent our weekends in the mountains and you know i love aspen trees and when they quake you know there's something inside you that likes mm -hmm. that yeah. uh, so but it, it turned out to be a problem because people couldn't spell it. They couldn't say it. I had people in Salt Lake say, quacking Aspen. I'm like, I got it. It's your state tree. You know, actually the <laughs> blue spruce was the state tree until the, the Utah legislature changed it to the quaking Aspen, mm -hmm. you know, cause we have one of the largest groves in the world. But uh, uh, anyway, quaking Aspen was a bad idea. It meant something to me, but to no one else. And that's bad marketing. Right. So, uh, you know, we kind of went back to the movie that started it all high plains rifter. And we thought, well, we're not in the deep south. We're not in the far west. We're not in the high desert. We're in the high west. And, you know, it, it just kind of came to us. And so how long did that kind, of, that kind of take to come up with that? You know, was it just a simple watching that movie? Like, oh, yeah, we're not in the... Yeah, well, the I mean, west we watched the movie when we got the idea for the mm -hmm. company, not the right. name. Not the um, name. But then later on, I, you know, I think it came to us in about three days. You know. Three days. Okay. We can't call it quaking. If one more person says quacking Aspen, I'm going to pull my hair out. So <laughs> it's not a quacking Aspen. All right. Definitely not. No, I think, uh, I think most people are probably pretty, pretty excited with the, uh, with the name. Now, I mean, another one of those, those great things about uh, high West and, and the story is, is the, in my opinion, it's such a, uh, perfect bottle and I've traveled, you know, traveling all over the world. I mean, I was coaching a camp. This was probably like two or three years ago. I was in um, Australia. I was in a place called Threadbow and yeah. we were at a bar and I'm looking at Threadbow, you know, I'm looking through and there is this high West bottle just. Oh, that's awesome. Bar. And yeah. I was like, come on, you gotta be, you gotta be kidding me. Right. And that, so uh, down I'm in Australia, for whiskey. yes, they do. So down in Threadbow, I was drinking uh, top shelf uh, High West. There, it was uh, it was awesome, oh, but it was quite great. the sight. I was like, wow, it's it's uh, it's nice to see a truly uh, truly is global and uh, con continuing to kind of grow. So where where did that kind of that that uh, idea for the for the bottle come from? Well, you know, I'm going to take it back to High Plains Drifter even though it doesn't go back to High Plains Drifter. But <laughs> I swear to God, in some Clint Eastwood movie, he has a bottle, he grabs it, and he pulls the cork out with his teeth. You've seen that, right? Mm -hmm. Well, to this day, I can't find that scene. It's not in any movie. You just imagine it in your head. Anyway, okay. point being, uh, we wanted something that would look like what Clint Eastwood would take and grab with his teeth. Uh, and we wanted a, something that looked Western and rustic. Well, it turns out there really weren't any bottles that looked like the High West bottles uh, exactly. They look very different. They're beautiful. Right. Uh, so we collected them all and looked at them all. Uh, the bottle was actually a copy of a bottle that the, uh, there's a tequila that was sold in this bottle. And my friend gave me a, uh, a gift of it once. And I always kept the bottle. And I said, you know, this is the one, even though it doesn't really look like any old Western bottle, it mm -hmm. looks like a little old Western bottle. <laughs> so yeah. uh, we just, we liked it. I uh, wanted to have the tallest bottle on the shelf. And so we were looking for a tall bottle rather than a squat bottle. Mm -hmm. um, but the toss bottle on the shelf just shorter than Grey Goose. So at the time, um, the toss bottle on the shelf was Grey Goose. They came out, they were taller than anything, and they were so, it was so prolific, the product, you had to carry it because everybody wanted it. Yeah. Bars had to move their shelves up to accommodate the Grey Goose bottle. Huh. So I thought, well, I don't want them moving up for us because we don't have as much money as them. So let's be slightly shorter than them, but they can still put our bottle in. So we designed it to be just shorter than the Grey Goose bottle, but tall enough to be stand out for uh you know on the shelf and uh, we designed the label if you see well you've got the bottle i don't have the bottle on. <laughs> uh, somebody said well you better make it so they can read your name from across the bar so look at the name yep that's nice and big rather than this tiny little font where you can't see you know like like yeah. that you can't see that <laughs> um but we wanted a bottle so uh, my wife and i went to mexico to uh, tequila country mm -hmm. uh, where they make the bottles for all the tequilas and all the tequilas have great cool bottles. And so you know, there's plenty of guys that handcraft bottles down there. We ended up meeting a guy named Jorge mm -hmm. um, and he was outside of Guadalajara 
Okay. Jalakapake. 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 Okay. Um, and they make all these bottles by hand. And, I mean, they don't make them by hand anymore. We, we shifted companies, but um, he was the guy and had, you know, they had seeds in it, looked hand blown. And it got to the point where we wanted him to make the bottle look. Uh, so if you see that bottom there, how thick that is. Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so they made it thin. I said, can you thicken it up? And he said, well, yeah, sure. We can do it. So they change it and they do it by hand and they made it really thick. And I said, well, can you make them look uneven? And he looks at me like, no. <laughs> and so they would, they would take the molten glass and kind of bang it on the table before mm -hmm. they put it in the mold and it would make it, you can kind of see there's a little unevenness there. Right. Yeah, of course. It was deliberate to make it uneven looking. Let's see if this one, yeah, this one's kind of got it. Yeah, absolutely. It was deliberate to make it uneven to make them look handmade. So anyway, we wanted that handmade broken. It's a special bottle, so right? It's extremely special, yeah. Now, where uh, where does that meticulousness kind of come from? Because it seems a lot of the, you want uh, the, the height of that bottle to be just a little bit shorter than Grey Goose. You want it to have that certain, and it seems like uh, in all Ooh. aspects of the business, there's definitely some meticulousness there. So, so where would you say that comes from? Well, I... I I think, you know, kudos to you for pointing that out. I'm, I'm hanging with it to the nth degree. Uh, I mean, you know, look, the customer cares, the customer gets it. Not all customers are going to see all the details, but you know, from most of the customers see most of the details. Some of the customers see all the details mm -hmm. uh, and you know, the details matter and, and your consumer, your brand is everything and the consumer, everything needs to line up. Right. So, you know, the, from the building in, in downtown Park City that had its flaws. Yeah. Uh, but they were perfect flaws. Uh, but, the, you know, the handmade, the barn wood, you know, we kept all the wood in the livery. Everything just had to make sense. But, you know, a bottle, if it's going to represent a brand that represents the Old West, it's got to have that kind of errors in it or mistakes in it, which has a beauty to it. And, you know, rather than a perfect gray goose bottle which, you know, doesn't really represent the brand. We mm -hmm. kind of celebrate the imperfections of life. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, I think, would, would you say part of that kind of meticulousness has helped in, in your success? I mean, that attention to detail, uh, because I would say there's a lot of people that, that brush those things aside and kind of just, just look over like, all right, I did, I did the daily thing that I was supposed to do. This was the task. I completed it to, maybe not the best or fullest potential, but at least it's done kind of brushing over some of that uh, attention to detail. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, there's two kinds of people in life on, a, on another framework. Those that say how we doing, those that say how you doing. Uh, but the, there's another two kinds of people in life, you know, satisfiers and maximizers. You know, for me, anything that's worth doing is worth overdoing. Mm -hmm. You know, put your gusto into it and A plus it. Because if you're not A-plus in it, you know, what, what are you doing in life? So, I mean, for me, uh, I mean, I, I, I wasn't naturally graded much. You know, I'm not the smartest guy in the class. Uh, but, you know, I've worked extra hard. You know, the, to work extra hard, you're meticulous about stuff. And right. You go over things again and again. You do your homework. Uh, but for me, I appreciate the details. But, you know, I felt the customer would care about that. And hmm. if you didn't care about that, you probably weren't our customer. You know, right. but if, if you did notice that you were our customer, and I think that, you know, it would say something about what's inside, that mm. somebody was a perfectionist about the liquid that you're about to put in your body. And if you're going to spend 40 bucks or more for a bottle of booze, when you can buy something for 15, you yeah. know, the details ought to be there. If they're not, it's probably not worth 40 bucks. Sure. 50 bucks or 60 bucks or whatever the price you're charging. Yeah. You know, so I, I don't think we charge the highest prices, but, uh, you know, I think our product was worth the price because of the attention to the detail. Yeah. And you, you certainly uh, put, put the time in for it. You know, I mean, how much would you say that that perseverance in kind of going through that research and development and then having to go through getting the building and the distilling and all that kind of, kind of played a role for you? Well, it sure wasn't an overnight success. <laughs> uh, and, you know, early on, it wasn't obvious we were going to get there. And there were plenty of times when we thought we weren't going to get there. So, you know, the meticulousness and the homework, uh, you know, at the end of the day paid off, but you just had to believe it was going to matter. But it, it certainly didn't seem like it mattered in the early days. In the early days. Was it, I mean, how, how much fun has that, has that journey been? Because 
a lot of the different people, you know, I've talked to, they talk about uh, the fun part of that process, creating that every day, being able to maximize and, and come up with the uniqueness of going to Mexico and dealing with tequila bottles to figure out the exact way that you, that you want it to look. I mean, how much of a joy was that for you? It was joy. You know, every step was fun, even though it was hard. Mm-hmm. But I mean, what we had was a really complicated, multi-dimensional system, if you will, the brand, the brand of High West. But the brand was the liquid in the bottle. The brand was the bottle itself and the details around the label and the height, the, the, the way the glass was. The brand was the facility that we built. The brand was the people that got hired and you know we had this culture that uh, felt great but the brand and the satisfaction was getting all that done in a way where it all lined up and then it was banging on all eight cylinders and it was excellent so that was fun and I, I don't regret a single bit of it it was so much fun really even you know at the end of the day just interacting with the people and being with the people who appreciated it as well because if yeah. they didn't and weren't as passionate about it, it would have been a lot less fun. But everybody cared. And that was the fun part. So, you know, I, I think we had a lot of A-plusers. And, you know, it was a pleasure being around people that cared and maximized. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. So how, how does it continue to move from there? Let's talk a little bit about going into uh, making of the juice. We have the, we have the quacking. Uh, <laughs> we've quacking moved on Aspen. from that. We're done with quacking yeah. Aspen. We... We've settled on High West. We have our bottles, and now we're working on some some of that whiskey. Well, I mean, of course, that was the fun part because I mm-hmm. think you know we started the business to make whiskey, and you know I like to cook. Uh, I was never a chef at a restaurant. Well, I was. I flipped burgers at a restaurant. But that that's a cook. Good. That counts. Yeah, that's a cook. No, <laughs> uh, I mean, but I, I like to cook. I like to cook at home. Um, the having my background in chemistry and especially biochemistry and, you know, making bread and using yeast. Um, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed tweaking the parameters on it to improve the product and doing whiskey was kind of the ultimate uh, thing for me because coming from biotech, uh, you made drugs, but you didn't mm-hmm. really sip those or you know, taste those or enjoy them. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they served a purpose and that was fun. Sure. And that was fulfilling. But more fulfilling was to make something and taste it and know that it was good. And then even better, knowing that other people thought it was good. So, um, do, do you remember the first whiskey that you ever made and, and, and tried, gave it a uh, taste? Well, there's two answers to that, yes and yes. One is what we <laughs> made and another one is why we were making and, and why we understood that making good whiskey is really hard to do. Mm-hmm. We bought some whiskeys from other distilleries mm-hmm. and sourced them. And, you know, it's obvious today. Everybody knows about today. But back then, it wasn't an obvious thing. And nobody knew about that. It was kind of a no-no. Even though other people did it, but nobody knew about it. People lied and didn't tell the truth. I, I met a guy, my mentor, Jim Rutledge, who ran Four Roses. And he was the one that said, gosh, you know, while you're waiting for your whiskey to get good, while you're waiting for it to age, how are you going to make money and pay the bills? And I said, well, good question. He said, well, buy some whiskey and sell it as your own while you're waiting. And I thought, well, I don't really want to do that. I want to make it. And he said, how are you going to pay the bills? So good point. And he helped us. He said, if I were you, I would sell the rye whiskey. Mm-hmm. Seagram's makes. They put in a Seagram 7. No one's ever had it. It's the best rye whiskey in the world. Hmm. And it turns out there was a batch of it sitting in Australia, of all places. Really? Foster's uh, was going to launch a bourbon and a rye in Australia. They changed their minds. The whiskey was sitting there. And at the time, Jim told me this. I met the guys at the Sigmund's facility. They put me in touch with the guys at Foster's who had the stuff they wanted to get rid of. We bought that rye whiskey and they shipped it back over the ocean to High West. So your Australian story is kind of funny to think. (laughs) Well, our whiskey started life in Australia where you can bottle. Uh, We shipped it and we ended up lending that rye with the older rye that I'm drinking now, 16 year. And... You know, it was amazing. And there were really no whiskeys that we knew of where they blended a young and an old. And so that was our creation. And one of the things we added to the business was, let's create a different product no one's ever had that's unique. That we right. could sell and talk about it as our own, even though we didn't make the base products. And so 
you know, that was really our first whiskey that we sold. That was called Rendezvous. Yeah. So, but the whiskey we were making in our own still, uh, you know, it took us a while to perfect the recipe. Mm. And, you know, we made a lot of bad stuff. Yeah. It's much better now, but, you know, better now because we learned from a lot of the best in the industry, uh, helping, helping us with the protocol and stuff. So. How, how influential was, uh, was Jim? Oh, I mean, first of all, I'm a big fan of his whiskeys, uh, the Four Roses whiskeys. If you don't have any, rush out and get them. They're okay. elegant. They're beautiful. Um, I think they're the most elegant whiskeys because for him, it's what you put into the wood. You know, garbage in, garbage out. If you put great stuff into the wood. So if you taste their white dog, which you can, you have to, you can buy other people's white dog. Most white dogs horrible. Raw <laughs> whiskey. Um, Four Roses white dog is elegant, beautiful. I mean, you could sip it on its own. It's very, very pretty. And so, you know, he was a big factor. You know, we want to make pretty whiskeys. Right. So. Um, How did you get in touch with him? Not just shoving it out the door, you know, just good. Yeah. good. So, yeah. How did, how did you find your way to Jim? Uh, I cold called him at the suggestion of a friend of mine that I'd met. It was a lady in the whiskey business, Rhiannon Walsh. And she had a couple of big whiskey shows. And she mm-hmm. said, you know, yeah, I, I think she gave me his email. And she told him to you know, expect my call. I cold called him. And he was so friendly. He said, you know, come out to Kentucky and uh, let's spend some time together. So I did. He was very gracious with his time. And, you know, why should he spend any time with me? Um, I mean, there weren't a lot of people asking. Them. There's a lot of people now. Right. But he was very gracious. He thought the idea of a Western whiskey was cool. Uh, we formed a, he was a perfectionist. Right. And um, he came to Park City and helped us with our first set of batches. And great, great guy. So, in fact, one of our yeasts uh, uh, came from Four Roses. They had five different yeasts, and he impressed upon me the impact that yeast has on your whiskey. Hmm. You know, what a perfectionist you need to be in the process to have a good product and a consistent product. So you know, that perfectionism translated over to what we do. Right. It works right your way into uh, being meticulous, right? <laughs> well, making good, making, you know, making good anything is about being meticulous. Never. Now, I'm curious, where, where does that, that love of, of whiskey come from? You know, have you, have you always been a big, a big whiskey lover? Because, I mean, it, you know, it's a fair question. Uh, I mean, I, I, I always liked it. Uh, I went to school in Virginia, and the, the, the drink of choice in Virginia was whiskey. There was a distillery there called Virginia Gentleman. Mm-hmm. And everybody drank, you know, that's what you took the football games. And, uh, you, know, you, you put a big bottle in your pocket and, and bring it in. So everybody drank Virginia Gentleman. It was a bourbon. You know, so I, I wouldn't say I was a connoisseur or anything like that, but I liked the taste. Right. I liked that kind of caramel vanilla flavor. So I always had a bottle in my cabinet. Okay. Uh, you know, and I, I think when I went to Maker's Mark on that, that tour and tasted it then from the still, that's where the light bulb went. I thought, you know, my God, this is really good. I was always a foodie. I liked beer. I liked wine. Yeah. But I wouldn't say I was a great taster. Or anything like that. Yeah. No, it's, but when I, you're making it, it's a lot. You know, when you're cooking in the kitchen, I mean, it, the food's, you know, it's a lot more fun when you're doing the work. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's one of those things that, as I spent my time at High West, it's one of the, I've, I've learned so much about it. Like, you know, I've, I always enjoyed whiskey but it wasn't one of those things where i was like yeah i don't know if my taste buds are, are quite there yet yeah right. once you once you start to understand the amount of work and and things that go into it and you first start to be like oh like you get some of those tasting notes and the nose and you start to figure out like it, it, it's really uh it's so rewarding when you're able to kind of create your own style and your own flavors that you really you really enjoy and it's uh, it's easy to see how it's how it's ex- exploding right now. You know, it's really expanding, and and the whiskey world is really uh, uh, growing so much bigger, right? Oh, it's super cool. I mean, it's the ultimate slow food, but it's you know it's a complex product, and as a consumer, it's rewarding to learn about it mm-hmm. and, and taste the differences. And you've experienced that, and I think I did the same thing. I experienced that, and I thought, you know, gosh, if we could learn about tweaking it, you know, how much fun does it get? when you're doing that on your own and you know, then what we learned was education led to appreciation. Mm-hmm. So the more you could teach people about that, the more they would like your product or, or bourbon or whiskey in general, but you had to teach people about that. And that's, I think that was one of the most pleasurable things in the business was having the light bulb blown off in other people's heads and them learning and learning to appreciate, wow, what is good whiskey? What's not good whiskey? 
Yep. No, it's, it's always fun to interact with some of those people that, you know, uh, it's an easy to see when they always tell you, I'm not a whiskey drinker. And it's like, oh, that's right. That, that's fine. Like, here you go. We're going to try some of these things. These will be some of the tasting notes. If, if you get a little hint of this or a little hint of that, and they're like, oh, I, I did get that. That's right. Oh, my light, you know, that, that little light bulb moment's always fun to, uh, always fun to be a part of. So you've, you've gotten to do that in your job. I've got, yeah, of course. I've Are gotten you given the tours at, at the refectory? Uh, no, 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 no. That is reserved for, uh, Bucket Greg and uh, and Sterling, but when we have other other tastings, going oh, well, on but you, tables, every table's a customer. You know, of course, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So it's always a it's always a fun fun uh, thing to interact with them on for sure. Yeah, cool. Yeah. That's good. Well, you're you're the right person they should hire if you like that. So I do enjoy it so far. That's that's for sure. Now let's let's talk about a little bit more of kind of that that expansion. You have Rendezvous Rye, which is the first product that kind of comes off the line, and and what what's that reception to the to the public, and what is the expectations for you? Because you are so meticulous, and you are attention to detail, and now your product is out there for people to try. Well, uh, fair question. I mean, you know, on the one hand, I knew I liked it, but I didn't know that other people like it right so you're kind of running an experiment just because you like something doesn't mean anybody else is going to like it so, um you know but i thought oh my god this is unbelievable it, it's got this clove the cinnamon all spice you know, there's nothing out there like it and uh you know little did we know the whiskey advocate magazine it was malt advocates whiskey advocate now they got a hold of a bottle we didn't send it to them and you know we get this note that we got a 95 point rating and, you know, I thought, oh, wow, that's cool. Well, 95 points, they don't dole that out like to everybody. And it's not <laughs> a big deal. And so, you know, we, we took all their top-rated whiskeys and we put them on our first sales piece was, you know, we put the price and the points. And we were the cheapest price with the highest points. And so, you know, sales kind of started going up. And I thought, oh, <laughs> pretty good. So we got a little notoriety because it was a good whiskey. It had a good rating at a great price. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was pleasing to kind of see that, which was good because, you know, we had a lot of bills to pay and, you know, we were losing money then. So it was kind of nice to be able to have a product that actually worked. Right. I mean, that's got to be really rewarding for you through that whole process of, of creating the product and, and building everything up to, to get a, a, at least just a little note, you know, 95 by, I mean, Whiskey Advocate, that's fantastic. Yeah, that was good. I mean, it, you know, rewarding mainly to, you know, we, we were spending money on this company, you know, you were spending X and you were making, you know, one tenth of X. And <laughs> at some point we got to cover the X. And, right. Uh, you know, it took us you know, three or four years to break even. And, you know, that was a tough time. And mm -hmm. that's, uh, we launched a rendezvous uh, Christmas of 2007. And then, the, you know, Bear Stearns and, uh, you know, financial market took a dive right about a month later. Yeah. Uh, you know, so the, the economy was in the shitter and, uh, you know, boy, we didn't know we'd make it. Right. Yeah. That was a tough time. At least we had a good product. So, you know. so, so you have that good product and you have that perseverance to kind of continue. I mean, how long can you, can you innovate and keep that product growing? Well, I mean, you had the one product rendezvous and then it's like, mm -hmm. well, well, we need to make more money. What are we going to do? So we came out with vodka. Mm -hmm. uh, we launched those old 16 year olds and we had a 21 year old um, and you know, people didn't buy old whiskey like that back then. You know, mm -hmm. Pappy, you could go into a local Utah liquor store and buy a bottle of Pappy for, you know, what it'd be, it'd sit on the shelf for months. Nobody would buy it. So people <laughs> you didn't give that stuff away back then. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, it was a slow, steady build and you know, it was about perseverance. It was about having enough money in the bank and, uh, we did a lot of planning, cash flow planning. That wasn't my forte, but, you know, after doing that, it is my forte now. You know, you got to put in a spreadsheet and measure every dollar and nickel and dime and, you know, pray to God. Money comes in and you're not yeah. spending too much. So uh, you got a lot of balls in there. Right. No, absolutely. A lot, a lot of moving parts. Now, now, part of that, I mean, especially during that, that time period, you know, in that recession, what, I mean, what are some of those, those kind of failures or some of those hiccups along the way? Because towards success, I would say, and 
uh, everyone's career, you always go through some of those failures or, or those um, learning moments that really help you kind of grow to newer and, and better heights that allow you to kind of come back. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, failures or trials. I mean, we certainly had our trials. I, you know, you could say the name, the initial name was a failure. You know, yeah. I, I, the, the point for us, we made a lot of mistakes and had a lot of, uh, you know, things that failed and correct quickly, you know, make mistakes correct quickly was kind of what we had to do. Correct quickly. Had to pivot quick. Mm-hmm. So it was about being on your toes and being ready to move. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I found out the name didn't work, you know, you change it. Right. But, you know, we came out with vodka. We thought, gosh, we could sell a whole lot of vodka because you look at Grey Goose. And we didn't sell a lot of vodka. <laughs> it wasn't a big seller, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so we didn't count on that. So we came out with a lot of different products. And it's kind of like throwing spaghetti against the wall. We would just come out with different things and see what would stick. Mm-hmm. So we ran a lot of experiments. And, and experiments are really made to, you know, pass or fail. fail, <laughs> move. Go quickly to something else. And it's okay to fail. And we failed a lot. Mm-hmm. So. so you would say definitely like adjusting with speed, being able to kind of pivot off one thing, not, not hold on to it for, for longer than it needs to. Well, it, it on seems to. like we were able to do that, you know, so mm-hmm. you know, some things we probably held on to too long. We sold some <laughs> unaged whiskeys, you know, we mm-hmm. got, we had the silver oat and the silver rye. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, nobody wanted to buy that stuff. So that was kind of a failure, if you will. Uh, but you know, we had to try it. You didn't know that people wouldn't buy it. So try it, run the experiment, take the shot on goal, you either make it or you don't. Right. And so kind of, when, when does when does Double Rye, America Prairie Bourbon, Campfire? I mean, Campfire is one of one of my favorites. I really uh, enjoy that. Yeah. It's, it's it's so unique to uh, so many different people. It's it's always one of those where someone will try it and they're like, I, I'm not a big fan, or they cannot stop drinking it. <laughs> That's true. I mean, it's binary. I mean, even even you know, when we were making it at the time, not all of us that were making it liked it. <laughs> But, you know, it sort of, for me, it filled a special void. And Jane, my wife, came up with the name early on. So we got to call our whiskey Campfire. And you know, I was thinking, well, we got to have the right whiskey if we're going to call it Campfire. And, uh, <laughs> but it was a great name. And, you know, we can't believe nobody had that name before, right? I mean, yeah, such no, it's fantastic. Whiskey. Obvious name for whiskey. Uh, but we, we had it, you know, maybe four years before we came out with the product. And okay. So, um, but the... The, the start, uh, you know, we were on Scotland and we were tasting the, the PD malts. And, uh, it was a dessert that we had where they had taken a bottle of peated malt and boil it down, put sugar in it. So they made a peated syrup mm-hmm. and they served it on some uh, ripe honeydew. And it was so delicious. And, wow. Um, different. I'd never had a dessert like that. And we had just been offered to buy some bourbon. We weren't going to do a bourbon. Okay. Well, we started with the idea of bourbon. Then we went to Rye and we thought, uh, you know, we don't need to do a bourbon. Everybody's got bourbon. Why do we need to do a bourbon? Uh, but uh, the place that makes the whiskey, MGP, which was LDI, which was Seagram's, mm-hmm. uh, was owned by Paranormal Ricard. They bought Absolute for a gazillion dollars. They were way in debt. They had to pay it off. So they were selling off the whiskey stocks. Okay. And they sent us some of this whiskey and it was bourbon, six, seven years old. And I mean, the, the price would be probably a tenth of what you pay today. Okay. But back then, it was a lot of money to us. But we tasted, oh, my God, it was so good. Some of it was Four Roses. And we bought it all. And we were in Scotland. And, you know, we tasted this fruit with the, the smoke on it. And we thought, well, why don't we mix a peated malt with some bourbon, which is really fruity, which came from the MGP. And that's where the idea came from. So. I want to try some of that dessert. <laughs> oh, run. Don't walk. Run. Get some ripe honeydew. Take a bottle of peated scotch, reduce it, put sugar in it. Oh, make a smoky, simple syrup. So good. But Campfire kind of reminded us of that. So you can have smoke with the sweetness of the bourbon. And if you get a fruity bourbon, which is what the Seagram's bourbon is, very fruity, delicious. Yeah. So the Campfire just worked. So it was good. Good product. But it took us, gosh, probably took us a year, you know, 80 different recipes. Uh, you know, we made a lot of failures in that. And tasted right. all. But it's great now. <laughs> right. good, good stuff now. So 
but you know the the ratios of the smoke to the bourbon you know you could tweak it a little bit and it would just go off it was amazing what a small change would make in the flavor of the product right so we learned a lot and is that the, is that same kind of learning go into double rye as well um yeah i think double rye you know because again we had i don't know two three products with the the rendezvous with the vodka with the older whiskeys. And it's like, mm-hmm. gosh, if we all had another. So you go into the liquor store and Jack Daniels would have, you know, 10 bottles across the shelf. Yeah. Same product. And then they would put one of our bottles up here, one down here and one over here. And it's like, well, how come Jack gets, you know, all their bottles here? <laughs> you know, you kind of maybe see High West. And we knew that if we could get more across the shelf, maybe they might see High West and buy High West. Okay. So it's like, we come out with other products and maybe extend our billboard. Mm-hmm. And, and also could we come out with something less expensive because Ryan had a six-year-old in it and that was expensive. Yeah. So we were buying the new make from Seagram's LDI mm-hmm. MGP and the young rye was delicious, but it was hot. Mm-hmm. So we did an experiment. We blended it with the 16 year old and bam, it was amazing. Double rye was such a good product, yeah. especially early years because the way they made the whiskey was a little different than than now. Okay. And they would buy rye from Europe, German and Swedish rye. And that rye, the way they cared for that rye was so different. And the whiskey it made had more cloves in it. And so you, you taste this young rye whiskey. It was so good, completely different than Rhiney but it was the same thing that would age to Rhiney So instead of kind of clove and allspice and nutmeg, it was more cinnamon, kind of red hot cinnamons. Yeah. The, the young double rye was so good. And one guy gave us a hundred point around it was so good. Uh, and it was a lower price point. You know, that kind of became our, our main go-to. Yeah. Now, I mean, for the, for the price point too, I mean, it is such a, such a fantastic whiskey. Um, Great whiskey for the you, price point. Yeah. It should always be in everyone's household. It should always <laughs> be in household. So, you know, the, the taste is a little different. Now. I think the ratios of the, products have changed and where they're sourcing rye is a little different. So it doesn't have that quite same cinnamon intensity, but yeah, still pretty good. But that cinnamon intensity was really was special. Right. And kind of going off of that, that cinnamon, what are some of your, your favorite uh, notes when you're, when you're going in and, and a whiskey for you personally, what, it, what is it that, that you look for and really enjoy when you're going in to try a, a whiskey? Well, um, fair question. I, I think, you know, it, people can pick out a thousand flavors in any whiskey bottle, but you know, you got to keep it simple for the customer. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if you can have a predominant thing in a whiskey where people can pick that up and say, Oh yeah. So double rye for me was cinnamon. Mm-hmm. Rendezvous had Christmas. So I also <laughs> mulling spices. So keep it simple. You know, rendezvous had mulling spices that made it a winner. Um, you get these candied fruits in the older whiskeys. So, you know, if you could find a prominent flavor that is something everybody loves, who doesn't love mulling spices? Who doesn't love cinnamon? Who doesn't love candied fruit? So, you know, I love all those distinctive flavors in different whiskeys. You know, there, and there's balance. And if you can have the balance of the oak to the, the predominant flavor, um, you know, that's a good thing. So you want your whiskey balanced. How, how hard is it when you're going through to, to find that balance? Uh, it's a lot harder than you think. You know, sounds whiskey, pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. I mean, you know, it's whiskey's a function of the barrels and every barrel's different. So, you know, at, at the end of the day, each batch is a blend of different barrels. And they're not always going to taste the same. Mm-hmm. You know, so we would have, you know, a, a lot of barrels from a particular season that had a particular flavor profile You'd want to kind of bleed that out to, to carry that flavor profile into the next batch and the next batch. So uh, we would have tremendous inconsistencies season to season. And to get that cinnamon flavor, you know, it was a, it was a big deal and hard to do. Right. Sounds like it'd be extremely difficult to. Uh... Well, when you get more and more and you're selling more, and you know, managing that inventory is probably the hardest thing we did, I think. And so we would taste it a lot and taste different batches and say, wow, you know, we can't run that batch down we got to spread that out to keep that flavor profile uh, anyway, that was the fun part of the job but also the challenging part of the job right now wh- where does that you you talk about some of those those stales 
when do you start to see a little bit of that uptick? Uh, you know, I, 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 it's kind of hard to exactly say. I mean, it wasn't like this hockey stick thing. I mean, it was just <laughs> a, a steady progression. But, you know, the good news is it was going up. Mm-hmm. And so you could kind of plan from that and say, well, if it's going up at this rate, here are the dollars that are coming in. And, you know, here's what our spin profile needs to be. And we put together a plan in 2006 that we raised some money on. Um, and we, we, it was a 10 year plan. You've got a spreadsheet with 10 columns and numbers, right? And, uh, it turns out the number we predicted in year 10 in 2006 was the number we hit in year 10, you know, that we said in 2006. Now that was pure luck. We didn't get there the way we thought we would, but, uh, uh, you know, I would just say it was just kind of a nice, consistent, steady. There wasn't a rocket ship, uh, hockey stick kind of a thing. Right. But, you know, you knew if you did all the same things consistently and kept putting pressure on, uh, that was the idea. Persistence. Persistence. How much is that, that persistence kind of along that, that 10-year plan? Because it sounds like a lot of planning, going in, figuring out some of those numbers and, and things of that nature, which kind of, I just said earlier, not like your super strong suit, right? Some of those finances. How, how difficult was that for you to try and, try and figure that out? Well, it's, it's, it's super hard. I mean, you know, we, we had some good guys that were good at spreadsheets and stuff and, you know, but they did a lot of iterations. And, um, I think the hard part was really all the planning and what ifs, because, you know, we were dealing with a future that we didn't know. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes companies will put a, a forecast together, which is the point forecast and you, you plan to that. But the point is, is you don't know that that's going to happen. So we did a lot of what we call scenario planning where we said, well, what if the forecast is half what you thought? What are you going to do then? How would you spend then? What if it's double what you thought? What would you do then? So it wasn't really what would be, it's what could have been. Yeah. And so we planned off of different possibilities because we just didn't know what was going to happen. Right. That goes back to that meticulousness planning for all those scenarios. If we weren't, we wouldn't be alive today. I mean, there wouldn't be a high west today. Yes. You know, shit hit the fan and Mm -hmm. we had times when sales were soft and um, things didn't go our way or we had to spend more money on something or a batch of whiskey. Somebody mixed the wrong thing and we had to throw it out. Right. uh, You know, you had to be prepared and have a contingency plan if shit hit the fan. Yeah. We had a lot of contingency plans. Makes sense. Definitely uh, makes sense when you when you talk about it that way. Now, let's talk about a couple of those those specialty ones that I know a lot of people are uh, big fans of. You have the uh, the dram, which is probably the most popular. It's one of those things every winter. As the soon as dram. the dram, everyone yeah. wants the dram. Where where does that where, now? Yeah, where where does that uh, where did the idea for the dram come from for you? Oh. It was so good. <laughs> rubbing it in everyone's face, that dram. <laughs> rubbing, yeah, rubbing in. This is, this is an old one, too, because if you look at the label, we yeah. put the old Shakespearean S's in that look like F's. <laughs> you see that? Yeah. Uh, so it says blend of Thwaite rye whiskey. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, they, I think they changed that. Uh, I don't know. But I don't know why. <laughs> Uh, I mean, you know, these were just, again, we didn't, we had an uncertain future and you had no idea what was going to sell or how much was going to sell, but we thought, gosh, if we get more products, uh, maybe we'll sell more. Mm -hmm. And so we did a lot of experiments. And again, we did a lot of experiments that failed and we did a lot of experiments that didn't fail. This is one of the experiments that we had that didn't fail. So we, I I had our national sales manager at the time who used to make wine I said, call all your friends in California and ship us every single kind of barrel you can. Zinfandel barrels, Syrah barrels, pork barrels, et cetera, et cetera. Hungarian oak, French oak. And so we put the rendezvous rye in all these different barrels, and we had 20 of them. And, you know, after a year, we said, let's break them out and taste them. And so we had all these 20 glasses lined up in front of us, uh, you know, tasting we call it speed dating you taste them all <laughs> pretty good impression pretty quick and two of them stood out that were like oh my god these are amazing um like a couple of them were just total shit so if you put ryan if you ryan a chardonnay barrel 
total shit. It was the worst. <laughs> what are we going to do with that barrel? I mean, I, I won't talk about that. Uh, <laughs> but we had one in French oak, and we had one in a port barrel. And at the end of the tasting, I mixed it together and tasted it. It's like, oh, my God, this is unbelievable. This tastes like Christmas because it tastes like a, like a, a, a you know, a pudding or, a, you know, a fruitcake that you get in a tin for Christmas huh? that people throw away. Well, I love fruitcake. Or like an English pudding where they put creme anglaise and light it on fire. You know? Right. It tastes like that. Yeah. And it's like, wow, you know, that's amazing. So we want to call it Christmas whiskey. Turns out some... A uh, guy in Cleveland had trademarked Christmas whiskey. So, you know, we'd gone down, we designed a label. And, uh, anyway, I was kind of disappointed, really rejected at that point. So, uh, um, but my daughter, this was in the summertime, my daughter was reading uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I saw the book, name came to me, we couldn't call it Christmas whiskey, bam, Midwinter Night's Dreams. There you go. It was an experiment. A lot of failures, a couple of things were good. The name was wrong again. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you, some serendipity happens and you pivot. So we had a lot of serendipity. So yeah. I'll no, take that's, serendipity anytime. That's awesome. Yeah. Everyone uh, I know is, is ready and waiting for the next batch. It's always one of, one of those things. As soon as it uh, sells out, a bunch of people will come in and be like, I'll give you X amount of dollars. I just need, I just need to yeah, get my crazy. dram. I missed it. I missed crazy. it. They come in for a ski trip and they're, you know, they're one weekend late and it's, yeah, come, come back next year. Sorry. Plan, yeah. plan your ski trip a little bit earlier. <laughs> I mean, we, we couldn't believe how, you know, we, we just did it as a one-off and you know, it sold out. We thought, well, gosh, maybe we should do it again. So, you know, that's one of those experiments. If it doesn't work, don't do it again. If it does work, do it again. So, you know, then we did other things. A couple of the other whiskeys in that batch, one mm -hmm. was in Syrah barrels. One was in Ruth Barrels. We mix those two together. Guess what that became? Ipikaye. Well, first it was Wild West Whiskey. Wild West Whiskey. Okay. Somebody had a name. Okay. I was, I was demoralized. I was, <laughs> what do you do when you're depressed? You watch Bruce Willis or John Wayne? Well, I was watching Bruce Willis. That's where the name came from. Perfect. So, I mean kind of during your your career here uh, how important of a role have ha, has film played in in it because um you're you it sounds like you're a big uh movie buff and i know in some of the locations there's definitely a lot on, on movies and and speak to that a little bit uh you know i mean I, I, everybody's a movie buff i think I, I don't know if i'm any more than anybody else but mm -hmm. I, I think I, for me you know, no one's got a monopoly on wisdom or great ideas. Great ideas come from other sources. And for me, it's the intersection of good ideas that create that newness and, and something that's fun and innovative. And so, you know, I'm kind of just copying what other people have done. So, you know, yippee ki -yay, I didn't invent it. Bruce Willis did when he said that, at, you know, at the Christmas party, they blew people's heads off, I guess. Uh, <laughs> remember that scene? Of course, yeah. You know? Uh, I didn't come up with, you know, Midwinter, Midsummer Night's Dream, but, you know, Midwinter Night's Dream, I don't know. It's just kind of, it was a riff off of something somebody else had done. So, you know, it's, it's not so much movies as just other disciplines or other creative people or other works of art. And if you can combine that, you know, so I don't know. I'm, I don't have a monopoly on that. I just got lucky, I think. Sure. But I think, I think part of that, I mean, it, it seems like you got to have a little bit of, of open-mindedness toward towards that you know it seems like you're pretty open and and you're at least like paying attention to a lot of those things maybe that's the case yeah i mean i, I think you know you owe it to yourself to to have a broad array of inputs and you know movies are an input for most people books are inputs for most people and mm -hmm. if you can expand your thinking and you know maybe broaden your perspective on things movies sure help you do that and that's one way i i enjoy broadening my perspective what are some of the, the, the books? I'm always looking to expand, I guess, my, my knowledge. So what are some of, some of the books that you've read that have really helped, helped you along the way? Oh, you know, I mean, I probably my favorite would be Atlas Shrugged. I mean, I, I think for me, I mean, it's a big, thick tome, but, you know, it's also about entrepreneurism. and It's about perfectionism. You know, a guy with a dream that wouldn't quit, that, that wouldn't give up. And, you know, he, he made this metal that was better 
mm-hmm. uh, and all the forces stacked against them. Uh, you know, how the, the entrepreneur is the most beautiful thing on the planet. And we should really step back and create the systems to let these people go and do their own thing. And, you know, that's what Atlas Shrug was about for me. It was about don't quit. If you believe in something, keep going. Don't let the turkeys get you down. Mm-hmm. Fight. If you know it's worth fighting for, fight. But, you know, and I, I think the big thing out of that book, if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. And uh, I think I love all Ayn Rand stuff. And, uh, but, you know, Atlas Shrug has a lot of great messages in it for people. That's probably the Bible for me. Right. When, when did you first read that? Well, I had to do a book report on it in college. And I didn't read the thing because it was too thick. So I read the <laughs> So I got the gist of it. So in, in Cliff Notes, and um, I, I think it made it to the screen, I don't know, maybe 2005. And, uh, when we sold High West, I picked up the book and I said, I'm going to read the whole thing from the back. So uh, it took me a while, but I didn't. You know, I, I think the lessons in it for me are, uh, you know, just self-determination and, and working hard. Mm-hmm. And if you work hard, good things will come. If right. you're perfectionist, good things will come. Um, if, if, you know, if you don't give people a handout, but you make people put their heart and soul into the thing and they're passionate about something, good things will come. So it was a good book for me. Right. I'm, I'm definitely going to uh, pick it up for sure. So it's a thick one. I'm telling you. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll set, I'll set some time aside. I'll be ready for it. <laughs> Where are the cliff notes? <laughs> do they still sell cliff notes i don't know you know i don't, I don't know if they do on is it just wikipedia nowadays it's Problem. Problem. <laughs> now uh, 2016 whiskey advocate high west distillery of the year what what does that uh accolade mean to you personally when that when that comes out that that gets released i mean all that that hard work uh perseverance what, what does that mean when, when one of those big magazines, you know, labels High West as distillery of the year? Well, I mean, for sure. I mean, it's, it's certainly special. Um, you know, we as a team had a, a goal, a long-term goal. Well, it was a vision. It was a vision. You know, we, we had our mission at High mm-hmm. West. It was, you know, we get out of bed in the morning and make great whiskey mm-hmm. to teach people about what makes great whiskey and to, to celebrate our home, the West. Uh, and so that's what got us out of bed. And the vision was where we're headed. And, and you know, we, we had our vision changed over time, but it, you know, I don't know when we wrote it. Once we hit break even, we said, why, why shouldn't we be considered one of the best stories in the world? And so you know, that might've been 2010. And so that was, in, that was a goal of ours as a company. And, you know, it was a team effort because uh, mm-hmm. we had to have the whole, you know, all, all eight cylinders had to be banging. Right. And, uh, you know, I, to, to get that and to be recognized by that, you know, it was really a, just a, a satisfying team accomplishment because we couldn't have done it without everybody doing rowing in one direction. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was really, really kind of, you know, just hit our hearts and you know, we were all pretty satisfied after that. That was fun. Right. And then, um, I mean, you know, we, A, we couldn't believe it because there's so many other great distilleries, right? But mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that was pretty special. I think, uh, you know, the, the team sure felt it. It was a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, it's Ultimate accolade. I mean, yeah, gosh, I mean, that was awesome. That was awesome. Now, then we go into uh, Constellation coming in. And Const- that's, uh, is that the same year or was that 2017? Uh, you know, gosh, Bobby, it's been a while. It's, I think it was the same year. Okay. Um, I think that was the year that, uh, I mean, we had all these companies calling us and I think that's, yeah, you know, I think they started calling us maybe 2015 Okay. and, uh, and was kind of out of the blue. They were last in the process. Um, but, uh, I think when we got the accolade, we were deep in discussions with a bunch of companies. Right. And where, know. where does that, where does that kind of to come in, come into play for you? Right. Because it's, it, I mean, it is your baby. And, and you start to do a little bit of that, that handoff process, right? How is that, is that difficult to kind of go through that to say, I mean, you know, you had a lot of negotiations and stuff like that and, and you are so meticulous and an overachiever and, and maximizing and making sure you're getting everything right to the last detail. 
So, so how hard of a process is that for you? Um, well, I mean, you know, it's uh, all of the above. It, it, it was fun because, you know, here are companies that wanted you. Mm-hmm. It was satisfying because you know, we, we ultimately raised money and had 100 investors. And at the end of the day, it wasn't about me. It right. was about the promised investors said, you're going to get your money back somehow. Now, we didn't know how that was going to happen, but, you know, as luck would have it, we put a 10-year plan together in 2006, and 2016 was when we sold. Yeah. Uh, you know, how, how did that happen? I, you know, that's pure luck. It wasn't, <laughs> it, you know, it didn't happen like we thought the plan in 2006, but, you know, it was kind of meeting a promise, and that felt good. But, you know, then you're handing it off, and it's like, well, I kind of liked my job. And I kind of liked, you know, where we were, and. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't about me. It was about investors and employees, and what was best for them long term, uh, you know, having a big company take it over. And, you know, it's one of the few places in town where I think people are still collecting a paycheck now. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I'm glad it's not a small business run it anymore because, you know, it's hard making a paycheck when you're not making that much money. Sure. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's times like now, it's so gratifying that, you know, there's 200, 300 employees mm-hmm. that, you know, are collecting a paycheck. Oh, my God, how gratifying is that? Yeah. So, I mean, at the time, we didn't know that. But, you know, at the time, we did know that here would be a great future for a lot of people. It's very meaningful in town. And, uh, so, on the one hand, bittersweet. But on the other hand, oh, I mean, so pleasing. That, you know, it's like kicking your child out of the, the nest from high school and they're going to Harvard or Yale or whatever. And, you know, hey, what's wrong with your child going to Harvard or Yale? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, so I mean, looking back on on the legacy that is High West so far, what 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 are some of the things that that are most gratifying to you? Kind of piggybacking on what you were talking about. Two hundred people in town that have a livelihood that you know mm-hmm. matter, mm-hmm. passionate about it, and you know they're collecting a paycheck. That's right. pretty gratifying. Sure. That's a lot of people in town. Uh, you know, p- p- people that are passionate about their jobs, love whiskey and, you know, love talking to people about whiskey. And, you know, whiskey's not the most important thing on the planet, but right. uh, it, it's certainly a, a pastime and a passion for people. And if you can change people's lives, you know, make them step out of their day to day grind and have them enjoy something a little more, whiskey does that. And to have 200 employees that feel that same way about it as I did, that's pretty gratifying. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's still alive. It's still going. People, <laughs> of course, absolutely. Find people that say, you know, I was in Australia and I, I saw a bottle of High West. That's pretty gratifying. <laughs> of course, yeah. yeah. Not only uh, the my see, favorite whiskey. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, Australia, uh, definitely New York City, a bunch of different places. Uh, Germany, yeah. Uh, saw it in Germany, uh, Switzerland. I can't remember. I think I saw it in, in Zurich as well. So it's. Uh, it's a few different places uh, on the map rather than in just the U.S. And of uh, of course, it's growing. So, so I, I get pictures from people you know, in different bars all around. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So to have your children out there, mm-hmm. and, but the extended family of high westers, that's pretty no, good. So I got a big family. That's fine. Absolutely, no, that's great. So for for some people out there that are you know, just, just kind of navigating through and maybe they're starting their own uh, distillery or, or kind of jumping into the game. What, what would be some, some words of wisdom, you know, because I feel like when people are trying to navigate on their own journey, there's certainly a lot of um, fears and things like that, that they have to uh, go through and kind of overcome, right? You have to battle somewhat of your own inner voice telling you no, and that you shouldn't do it. What, what, what would you tell them? There, there were a lot of questions in that question, <laughs> uh, but that's okay. That's, you know, I, I think, look, everybody needs an anchor. And, uh, you know, my anchor was my wife, Jane, mm-hmm. and through thick and thin, she believed in me. She supported me. You know, I got the hug when I got home, even the day was shitty or you made a mistake. So everybody needs an anchor. Um, okay. You know, the, the other thing for me is, uh, you know, the stupidest thing when, when my dad, told me it and I thought oh my god dad, are you kidding me but I think of it all the time and it's stupid plan your work work your plan plan your work does it get any simpler than that right? right you know and do it every week 
and that's where you, you course correct. You know, don't don't have a plan and stick to it come hell or high water if you know the data saying it ain't going to work. Mm-hmm. But you know, you need to have a plan. You need to have priorities. So you better sit down once a week and focus. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I'd write down my things every week that I'm going to do, and does it fit with the long term objectives? Um, you know, if it didn't, why are you doing it? Why are you changing? So you know, a lot of people are scatterbrained and sporadic and do different things and change course. You can't change course too much, but you need to change course at some point if it's not working. Um, but you also need to hit your priorities. And it's pretty easy to get overwhelmed. So if you're not stepping back and planning your work, you know, overwhelming uh, amount of stuff coming at you is hard to deal with. Right. I feel like there's a lot of people every day that, that especially now in the growth of, of cell phones and Wi-Fi and being connected, that it's, it's a lot more oh. difficult to try and prioritize. Life's hard. So, you know, yeah, for me, I would prioritize on paper. Paper. Uh, okay. So I, I wouldn't be looking at my computer and you get the ding and the ding and the ding. <laughs> you got to unplug and focus. And okay. it's really hard now to focus, I think. And, mm-hmm. You know, that's that for me, you know, being meticulous and going offline and thinking and planning, uh, I know it's hard to do things without that. So, everybody out there, get a pen and paper. Write it down. Well, whatever works for you, you know, but you got <laughs> to limit the dings. You know, right. They're very distracting. So life's distracting now. It's much more distracting. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially with uh, everything else that's, that's going on right now. Well, David, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time and chatting with me. Uh, it's been well, awesome. yeah, right on. I, I appreciate, I, I appreciate your thoughtful questions. Dang, yeah, man, you some homework, Bobby. That's all I got to say. <laughs> of course. Absolutely. You're a homework doer. I mean, that's, I'm a homework guy. So, you know, it's clear you did your homework too. So, good for you. Perfect. Well, uh, thank you very much. And uh, thanks, everybody. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Well, right on. Thank you, Bobby. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks a lot for listening in. I really appreciate it. Please make sure to take the time to like, share, and subscribe our show. And also, you can follow along on Instagram. Thanks.